Mark, we spent a whole week talking about Mark himself and his character and how you remember that he is characterized as a servant. And you can see it almost every time he's mentioned in the New Testament that the concept of serving is right there beside him. And his first service was to uh, Paul and um, Paul and Barnabas on their first journey, and he couldn't quite finish it, and he left them. And then that sharp disagreement between Paul and uh, Barnabas, the genesis of that was arguing over whether Mark should go with him on the second journey. And uh, so he was a servant used by the Lord uh, to help the other apostles. And two, he's a symbol of someone who's restored. You remember, at the end of Paul's life, he's writing Second Timothy, he says, bring Mark here to me. He's useful for service. And Peter, too, in First Peter, he's writing about my son Mark. So he was around. He initially sort of failed, but eventually the Lord redeemed him and, and brought him back to, uh, to do great things, and not the least of which is he wrote the Gospel of Mark. For us to have forever. So, very interesting character, and his his nature of being a servant does come out throughout the gospel because he, more than any other gospel writer, portrays Jesus as the suffering servant. So, I think the Lord wired Mark a certain way and used him to describe that particular character of the Lord. Anything else you remember? He uses uh, a lot of vivid details when he describes. Jesus' reaction to people, he'll describe a certain scene, he'll use colorful words and vivid details, and uh, also describes Jesus as the miracle worker. Many more miracles are described by Mark than any other gospel writer, and in fact, the time he commits to describing the miracles, the passages are longer than the descriptions of those miracles in Matthew and Luke. He has somewhat less flattering view of the apostles than the other gospel writers. He, you'll see, as you read through it, the, the apostles seem pretty dull throughout the whole book. They'll see him feed 5,000, and then 4,000, and then they'll be hungry and say, what are we going to do for food? I mean, it's almost like right next to those scenes. So I'm going to get into some of this more in a few minutes, but you'll, you'll see that he does uh, tend to have a little bit less flattering view of the apostles. So, all that to say, before we get into the text today, which really we will read uh, verses 1 through probably 13, and we'll teach mainly on those first eight verses. But before I do that, I just can't resist reviewing again, in a little bit different context, the, the, the uniqueness of Mark's gospel. And I'm going to finish this little section and teaching with a challenge to you guys as we go forward in the next few months. Uh, in your personal time reading the gospel, a certain way, a certain way that I advise you to read it. And I, hopefully you'll appreciate that when I, as, as I go through this uh, certain perspective. So, uh, you know, when I taught the gospel of John before, and in a way, it's not easy, but, you know, you can read um, chapter 4, The Woman at the Well, right? And you can read that chapter, and you can just instantly gather so many truths, you know, that from there. You know, you have this Samaritan woman. She is alone. She's at the well. It's dry. She's thirsty. He says, well, if you keep drinking this water, you'll continue to be thirsty. But drink the water I give you, and you will never thirst. You'll have eternal life, basically. So you can just read that and dwell on it and really gather the teaching there, right, and, and marvel at it. So 
as I was reading through Mark, preparing for this, again, you know, several weeks, I'd read through the gospel and read it, and I'd take notes, and it's like, well, there's miracle after miracle, not much teaching directly about Jesus, and it was a challenge for me to, you know, get an orb for how to teach it. So, all that to say, um, I've read a commentary by this fellow. It's in our library, by the way. R.T. France, the New International Greek Testament Commentary. And he has some insights that really helped me that I want to share with you that will help you, I think, appreciate this gospel as we read through it over the next few months. So, all that to say, he points out that, think about the first century, okay? He's writing to Romans. The literacy rate at that time, anybody know what the literacy rate was? about that time, first century? Probably 10%. So just keep that in mind. He's writing to Romans. One in 10 know how to read. Maybe one in five, but probably more like one in 10. Um, and to remember the Romans. They don't understand the law. Uh, so Mark probably knew most of the people hearing this would hear it. So someone would be up in front of them reading it, not reading it themselves. And... So think of that. If you had that task to write a story that people would be sitting down listening to, you might do some of these things that we've already pointed out are really unique to his gospel, like use these really vivid descriptions, cause it to be fast-paced, repeat yourself. So say something, which Mark often does, rather than say something, a phrase once, he'll repeat it, boom, boom. Say the same thing twice because repetition will help you remember it. Uh, this, the pace of the book would speak to that need for people who are listening to comprehend and to remember it. So I want to go through a few of these examples, and then I'll have a, a challenge for you at the end of this, this little segue um, as we go forward over the next few months. So, the word immediately, we've talked about that. It's throughout the Bible, throughout his gospel. Uh, an example of the vivid terminology when, you know, the, the demoniac that he first heals, he says, his name was Legion. Okay, that, his name was Legion. So if you're hearing that, you would remember this demoniac. His name was Legion, right? Other uh, gospel accounts don't mention his name. When he talks about um, after Jesus' baptism, the heavens opened up, the word he uses is more like the heavens were torn open. That would be the original word. So this image of, of uh, a sheep being torn apart, all right? That, that's what happened when Jesus looked up into heaven. And that gives you the image of, okay, heaven is opening up. This is now this communication through this one person, Jesus, very different from anything else that had happened before. So that's another example. If you look at chapter 1, I'll just read it for you, verse 35. Here's an example of how he'll repeat the words. In the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up left the house and went away to a secluded place and was praying there. So in the early morning, while it was still dark. Seems a little trivial, but he does that a lot. He'll say the same thing sort of twice. Where the other gospel writers would have just said, in the morning, Jesus got up and left. Okay? Chapter 2, verse 4 has another one. He says, Being unable to get to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and they had dug an opening. They let down the pallet on which the paralytic was lying. So there are twice. They removed the roof, and then they dug an opening. So he's really, the point I'm making here is he's painting a picture a little bit more vivid than the other gospel writers might do. 
And there's lots of those examples throughout his book. Uh, again, the many miracles. If you were listening the first time to this account, you heard all these miracles, boom, boom, boom. It would intrigue you, right? You'd want them to keep reading. Keep reading. I'm not going to fall asleep. I want to hear more miracles, right? The early church father, Papias, Papias, am I pronouncing that right? I think it's Papias. Uh, he, this is the early testimony, uh, secular, non-biblical testimony about Mark's gospel. He, he, this is quoted often, but when he talks about Mark's gospel, this is about the year 100 or so. He says, Mark wrote many of the things, not indeed in order. So Papias acknowledges, well, Mark's gospel isn't really the order like Matthew's was. By the way, I think Matthew was written first. So Matthew's account is a lot more uh, detailed in, um, in Jesus' biography, I guess you would say. Luke is even more so. Luke goes way back to Jesus' birth, more so than Matthew, and describes his genealogy, describes Jesus' early life, describes John the Baptist's early life, and Jesus' ministry. And Luke even tells us, remember, I set out to do this, most excellent. I'm really putting this in order as best I can. So Luke's is different, but Mark's, Papias acknowledges, isn't really in order. And when you read it, and compare it to the other Gospels, you can see it's not, because according to Mark, Jesus' ministry was, was one year. Basically, Jerusalem, up to Galilee, back to Jerusalem, and that's, that's the whole book. There's, there's not a three-year ministry. Mark uses a lot of irony and paradox. This even came up last week. I think it was Neil. We read the chapter, and we talked about the things in it that were interesting, and one of them is he'll heal someone, the demoniac, and say, don't tell anybody. Jesus tells him, don't go tell anybody what I just did. But strange to us because that was a remarkable event. Everyone just saw this demoniac and the swine, you know, the demons cast into the swine, and everyone sees it. It's very remarkable. Obviously, everyone's going to talk about it, but Jesus says, don't tell anybody. So we didn't really have an answer last week as to why that was. But one reason probably is because it just, Irony and paradox, a couple things. But one is it makes you want to keep listening and try to sort this out, right? It makes your mind sort of think, well, how, how, why is this? I want, to, I want him to keep reading this story so I can see how this plays out. Uh, Mark uses irony and paradox a lot, a lot, and we'll, we'll see it over the next few months. The secrecy, okay? That's another technique Mark uses, and I guess I'll use the word secrecy to describe this, this um, pattern of Jesus telling people, don't spread what I just did. Don't tell anybody. And at the same time, he'll head out into the wilderness. He'll head out into a secluded place as if he's trying to get away, but we know he's not trying to get away because he has this booming ministry. So just keep these things in mind as you read through it. And when you see it, um, take note of it, and, and we'll be able to talk about these as the as the weeks go on. Okay, the pattern of Jesus' movements in Mark. Uh, th- th- I just fold this into the um, paradox or irony or um, narrative. You know, let me just draw this briefly. I am a terrible artist, but basically, you know, the geography. You have uh, the Sea of Galilee up here. You have the Jordan River. You have the Dead Sea, right? DS. Sea of Galilee, and you have you know Samaria in here, 
you have Nazareth about here. Um, what other major? Jerusalem. Thank you, Jerusalem. <laughs> yes, thank you. I need that. Jerusalem here. And then this whole area is Judea, right? You, you read a lot about Judea. Judea, the region. So, real brief drawing, but I put it up there just to remind you. The book starts in chapter 1, Jesus being baptized. Okay, that's probably you know, around here. Bethany, beyond Jordan, right? Beyond the Jordan, the west, east side. So, he's baptized. And basically, chapters 1 through 10, Jesus immediately after he's baptized, he's, you know, according to Mark, he's here. He's in Galilee teaching. And so this whole area here, chapters 1 through 10, Jesus traveling back and forth, Sea of Galilee. He goes to Nazareth a couple times, but he's in this area for 10 chapters. The whole book is 16 chapters, all right? And when he's here, the first, one of the first miracles, the demon says, oh, Jesus of Nazareth, we know who you are, all right? So just the picture here. Here's the religious center of the universe, right? Israel, Jerusalem. He leaves there, goes into Galilee region, which is more so non-Jewish people. I mean, it's, it's, it's a mixture. You've got to go through Samaria, and there's a mixture there. But in Galilee, it's really mostly the non-Jewish culture. And remember, most of them can't read, so they, they didn't really know the history of the Bible. So God himself leaves here, goes to Galilee, teaches those people. And when he gets there, the demons know who he is. And as chapter 3 and 4 and 5 come along, what you see are once in a while the, the uh, scribe or the Pharisee from Jerusalem will show up. And what they always bring is guess. What do they bring with them? Criticism. They set their minds to destroy Jesus. All right? So just, I'm just trying to paint the picture here. As you read it, you, you see he has a great ministry here, saving the lost, performing miracles, <coughs> casting out demons. The demons know who he is. And by the way, his apostles and disciples don't really know who he is. Even though he's doing all this, the demons know it. The people he saves seem to know it. And the disciples throughout the whole book don't quite get it. So, the Jews bring death with them. The religious people bring death to Jesus. Ultimately, chapter 10, the last six chapters, he's down here in Jerusalem. And that's sort of the building, this climax of death is coming to the Servant, the suffering servant, all right? So I just point this general flow out to you because when you read it, I think the words that Mark uses to describe the Jews or the people he heals or the demons and the stories he'll unfold one after the other, they're painting a picture like a, like a really, really good, good story should paint. <clears throat> different from some of the other Gospels where it is more theological directly in the words. So Mark, this guy, this fellow, R.T. France, calls him, he said, Mark is, is the consummate storyteller. And so I say all this to say, to remind you, when you're reading it, what I want you to do is put yourself in the shoes of a Roman Gentile at that time who didn't know much about Jesus. Put yourself, try to do that and read through the Gospel once. And it will really pop to you. It'll, the, these descriptions Jesus uses and the scenes he describes will, will have a little more meaning to you. Don't try to do it that way, all right? And 
it's hard because we're all so familiar with these stories and they're in the other Gospels. And so you might tend to read it through without that perspective. But my challenge to you is try to read through it with a perspective of a totally fresh look at Jesus as if you hadn't heard much before and, and you'll really appreciate the techniques that Mark uses. They're intentional, I think. And so you'll appreciate it more if you, if you do that. Got it? So, and then my second challenge for us is because uh, you will get more out of Mark if you read it in big chunks. Okay, so I would ask you for the next couple weeks, I mean, it takes me about 15 minutes to read four chapters. So I would, at some point, you got to sit down and read the whole thing. Um, but if you really want to get a lot out of this book and join, you know, all of us want to, I would encourage you, please, in fact, it's homework, you have to, you know, maybe read four chapters a day. Read, read the first four, and by the way, the four chapter section is good because they're almost like those are certain sections of Jesus' movements a little bit. But if you read four chapters a day, four days a week, you've read the whole book. If you could do that every week for about a month, we will all get a lot more out of it because you'll come in and say, oh, yeah, I see. This was sandwiched in and enveloped into this story, and I can see what Jesus or Mark is teaching us about this, the nature of Jesus or the nature of this miracle or what is he saying about his family. And, um, so I encourage you to do that, and we'll, we will really, I think, get a lot more out of it than otherwise. Any questions about it? Okay. Let's go to let's go to chapter one then. And last week we just by way of review briefly mentioned that this first verse is really most most useful as a title for the whole book. You know, now put yourself in the shoes of this Roman person who doesn't know anything. And this is read out loud to you. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It's just a loud title, right? And then now Mark's going to launch into telling us about that. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea was going out to him, and all the people of Jerusalem. And they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist, and his diet was locusts and wild honey. So, right? So you have a description of the scene of Roman thinking, wow, this, this, this wild man out there with a leather belt, and he's eating locusts and honey. And people are flocking to him. People are going to him for this baptism of repentance. So even from the outset, even just John, you've got this image that's powerful to a person who hadn't heard this before. Where was I? Okay, verse 7. And he was preaching and saying, After me one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his handles. So, another image. The other gospel writers don't talk about stooping down and untying the thong of a sandal. 
Mark is painting an image here. This humble man, John, wild man, out there austere, alone in the desert. And, and he's saying, this person, even me, this dirty, locust-eating person, I'm not even worthy to do that. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Immediately, coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit like a dove descending upon him. And a voice came out of the heavens, You are my beloved Son, and you I am well pleased. Immediately, the Spirit impelled him to go out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild beasts, and the angels were ministering to him. Isn't it a powerful image? That whole scene. He's not only out in the wilderness, he's in the wilderness with the wild beasts, the jackals, and these wild animals, and these boars, and they're out there, and it's, it's a desert, and Satan is there, and he's being ministered by the angels for 40 days. So, let's go through these. Uh, sort of verse by verse and just point out a few things to you. First thing, we touched on this last week actually that I want to point out is um, this idea of true repentance. What was John preaching? John was preaching a baptism and, com and performing a baptism of repentance and he introduces John here by quoting the Old Testament and we pointed out that when he says, as it is written in Isaiah, Actually, verse 2 is not Isaiah, it's Hosea, or I mean, excuse me, Malachi, chapter 3, verse 1. Second half is Isaiah. And we talked about why that might be um, several different theories. Uh, the one I like the best is basically he's quoting Isaiah and then he throws Malachi in there for free. Okay, so it's like, it's not like Mark was confused. I don't think so. That's what some people think Mark didn't really know the Old Testament very well, but that cannot be true. Remember, Mark was taught by Paul all those years, most likely, and, and he was Peter's interpreter, so he spent a lot of time with Peter, so he probably knew the Old Testament. Um, so, in any event, he, he quotes Isaiah there, the second half, and then also um, Malachi, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. It would be good, actually, to note the difference between, at this point, Mark and Luke. Just to sort of reemphasize my introductory comments here, to show how different Mark is, and to point out that, um, you know, the different gospel writers have a different perspective and a different angle in describing something. So I'll just read it for you. It's Luke uh, chapter 3, verse 1 and 2. So this is Luke the historian, right? Now, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, and Herod was tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip was tetrarch of the region of Ituria and Traconitus, and Lysanias was tetrarch of Abilene. In the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. And he came into all the district around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So, different than Mark, right? Just want to point that out. John, Luke is really interested in having a chronological, historically accurate, um, like, a, like a history text. 
that we can rely on for the events of Jesus' life and those people surrounding him. Uh, different than Mark here, where you just basically have the image of the wild man eating locusts, right? So, back to uh, this work of repentance. Uh, John's baptism didn't grant repentance, right? He didn't wash them in the Jordan, and then they were, re- they were cleansed of their sins, they were, or they had repented of their sins. They had to repent first, and then be baptized. And we know that is the case, because I want you to look at Matthew chapter 3, verse 7 through 10. And this is a description of the Pharisees that were coming to John's baptism. And before you go there, we know what he calls them, right? When they come to be baptized by him? This brood of vipers? But anyway, look at John chapter 3, verse 7. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones... God is able to raise up children of Abraham. So uh, John is recognizing these are hypocritical people coming to participate in this baptism, but they weren't repentant. They're brood of vipers. They're hypocrites. They saw how thought, well, I'm a son of Abraham. I'm good. I can participate in this ritual that John has instituted of a baptism of repentance. But he says, you're not repentant. So the first point I want to make is that true repentance is just like our salvation a gift from the Lord, right? God apparently predestined that John's disciples would repent because he told about it back in Isaiah and Malachi. He said, you know, he's here to prepare a way. They will come and repent. So uh, repentance, like uh, our salvation, is, is a work of God and it's a work of the Holy Spirit. And he predestines us for repentance. We can't repent of our own effort. Probably some of those Pharisees that came to John may have had a moment of, well, I'm going to repent. Yeah, it sounds good. But they weren't truly repentant. Uh, in the Old Testament, baptism has always been a symbol of cleansing or washing, but not. No, generally, there's, this is pretty unique, as I understand it. Maybe some of the. Yeah. Right. Yeah, this is a unique ministry. Yeah. Yes. All right, so it's a work of the Holy Spirit, not of our own effort. Uh, The second thing I want to point out is um, to say that knowing the Old Testament is sufficient for us to learn of God and to be... God can use the Old Testament scripture to bring us repentance. In Luke chapter 16, verse 30, it says, But he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead... This is when uh, he's talking to a man about allowing him to go tell his family parable lest I need to tell them about you because I don't want them to die and and be in hell like me because if I go and tell them, they'll repent. And uh, Jesus says, Luke 16.30, But he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. So people can listen to Moses and the prophets, and that can 
speak truth to us, to them. They're sufficient to bring us to repentance. The second point. Third point is sorrow and grief are good for us because they are used to produce repentance. So God does use our own sorrow and our own grief to bring us God, true godly repentance. And you can see a great verse that describes that in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Verse 9 and 10, Paul says, I now rejoice not that you were made sorrowful, so the sorrow is not what we should rejoice over, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance, for you were made sorrowful, again, this according to the will of God, not according to your guilt burden, but the will of God is what drove you to be sorrowful so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us, for the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. So it seems like Paul's summarizing what John the Baptist's ministry was. Sorrow and grief will lead us to repentance. And then the last thing I note about John's ministry is his ministry of uh, repent- baptism and repentance is it's pretty public, right? So you, you, it's a public ritual. Lots of people out there. And we understand that when we baptize people in the church, that this is an essential key element to that is, a, is sort of a public confession. I am the Lord's. I am cleansed. I, I, have, I have new life. In the same way, uh, I think of David, right? When he was called to task for his big sin with Bathsheba and um, Uriah, that was sort of public. Someone else knew about it. And I think my experience here is too probably is that true repentance is often visible to others. Where It's not a secret repentance. Oh, it's, it's something that other people can see. And when we truly repent, you sort of want to tell someone about it. I mean, a real repentance of a, of a grievous sin or something you've done, you can't do that in private. That's just my experience and I think the testimony of the Bible. And I think of David in that. In Acts, I want to read one last verse before we move on to the next, to verse 6 here. Uh, you know, we do always truly repent before we believe. And that's set up right from the get-go at Pentecost. Acts chapter 2, verse 37. Now, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter, okay, so the Holy Spirit has sort of hit them, right? They're pierced to the heart. They, they're... They, they, Tongues of fire, they've seen it, and and the Holy Spirit is present in their midst. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, what's the first word? Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So, all that to say, repentance is key. Mark knows it, and even to the Romans he's writing to, he's pointing out that repentance is... First, before you hear all the miraculous stories of Jesus, as a part of his prologue, he starts out um, telling them about repentance. Any questions about that? It, some people think, you know, that first verse, the beginning of the gospel, should be written, um, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ is John's ministry, as it was written formally. That's how some people would interpret linking these verses together. Uh, But 
Maybe so. At the same time, though, I think this is the beginning of a grand work of Mark. Okay. One other, a couple other points. Um, I think I forgot to mention John the Baptist, obviously integral to all the gospel accounts. We see him in all four of them. Uh, I think I mentioned this last week. Remember, too, that John's ministry of repentance and his ministry was huge, very big. Some people even think it was the amount of people that flocked to him for repentance may have been as many as the people that flocked to Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. Don't know about that, but the historical accounts, though, are that it was a huge ministry, many, many people in the wilderness. And um, let's see here. Yes, it was so big that Luke tells us that some people even thought he was a Messiah. Remember in Luke chapter 3, now while the people were in a state of expectation and all were wondering in their hearts about John as to whether he was the Christ. So it was that big. They even thought that he may have been the Messiah coming. Okay, just real briefly, when you look at verse... Six, this whole idea of the leather belt and the, um, the camel's hair and his diet of locusts and honey, that really was a description of some of the austere prophets. They really did eat these locusts. They had a way to prepare them. I mean, they, they had different ways to fry them up and eat locusts, I guess. So that is what they would eat out in the wilderness. And then this honey, too, may not have been bee honey. It may have been like a word that describes some other uh, sweet, gum-like thing you might get from a tree, but uh, that is, he was out in the wilderness, away from society, on his own, living that life. And it reminds us of another prophet who is, right, that's Elijah. It reminds you of Elijah, and this is another little digression. I just want to, because Elijah, it seems to me, gets just a lot of ink in the New Testament. And it seems like more so than one would expect, when, you know, you read two chapters about him in First Kings 17, 18, and he was a great prophet, and he, he cast down the prophets of Baal, and he was taken up in a whirlwind, indeed. But really, he's mentioned so much in the New Testament, so I just want to go through a few of those verses um, that talk about Elijah, because this is who John the Baptist is a, is a type of Elijah, like Elijah. So the first thing... Uh, in 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 8, it describes Elijah. I won't go there, but basically dressed like John the Baptist. And then you can read about Elijah in those two chapters. Well, there's other chapters in 2 Kings, but 1 Kings 17, 18, you can read about Elijah. That's the thrust of his prophetic ministry. You remember him, right? The poor guy. He, he, um, he cast down the prophets of Baal, killed 450 of them. And this is when uh, Ahab and Jezebel, right? And, and Ahab was going to go after Elijah, and he casts down the prophets. Grand 
wonderful uh, power of God. And then Jezebel says, I'm going to get him. And he runs away and hides under this little tree and sort of feels sorry for himself. Do you remember that? He's just a really interesting character. But in the end, ultimately, the Lord does take him up uh, in a whirlwind and Elijah never died. So, uh, we don't, Mark doesn't mention Elijah here, but the other Gospels do. Um, in John chapter 1, they are asking John, who are you? Are you Elijah? He says, I am not Elijah. John clearly says that. At the Transfiguration, I'll read that for you, a quick account uh, when Jesus meets with Moses and Elijah in the Transfiguration. Matthew 17, he describes it. He says, as they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. And his disciples asked him, why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he answered and said, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they wished. So also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. So basically Jesus is saying here that Elijah did come in the form of John the Baptist. So John says, I'm not Elijah. Jesus says he did come in the form of Elijah. Luke chapter 1, when uh, the angel's talking to John the Baptist's father, the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb, and he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children. And that's the quote of Malachi chapter 4, verse 6. And the disobedient to the attitude of righteousness so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So I don't have a great conclusion about Elijah's role here, but basically John the Baptist was like Elijah, you know, pre-coming to turn the hearts of the fathers back to their children and uh, he wasn't Elijah, but he was like Elijah. And that's validated by his description, physical description too. Any other thoughts on the use of Elijah? In the, go ahead, Kay. It's maybe just in general about the picture Mark is painting and what you're helping us see that, you know, I've read in history that which the Roman audience would have been well understood that when a great leader or king or ruler comes to a land, they send a forerunner to right, yeah. the load, clear the roads, say that this great man is coming behind me. And so how interesting that they would that would be normal to them, that this had started with the forerunner to prepare Christ. But yet the picture that's being painted of this forerunner, of the wild man eating locusts and mm-hmm. That probably already had them very gripped at what type of ruler, leader, God in the flesh would send this type of forerunner. You know, Ex- so it almost yeah. paints of how different Christ will be. He will not be the ruler we think, and he doesn't see as man sees. Right. And so, therefore, he's not going to send the forerunner that is every way checked off on the man's um, yes. detailed thing. And so that that ministers to me. You know, that yeah. thankfully. I'm not under, you know, that that is how Christ sees and that's how he deals with the heart of man. And so yeah. 
it's really a precious thing, I think, you know, given what you're helping us see. Yep. It fits perfectly. Thanks, Kay. Yeah. Ricky student here. Thanks for coming. But that's exactly the way I sort of would like you to read through this gospel because that is just so key. That, in fact, thank you for reminding me of that. The uh, make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. I don't remember the exact Greek word there, but basically it refers to the way Kay's describing in, in Rome when a leader came. They would, the roads were terrible back then and crooked, and, and so they'd have to sort of straighten them out and smooth them out and make a straight path so that the ruler could march along it. So the Romans would have known what that meant, exactly. And then yet, who is it? It's this crazy man that's doing that. So again, the first, one of the first instances of, of the paradox and the irony that Mark will use almost verse by verse, story by story, to make us intrigued. Like, oh, I want to read on about this miracle worker that uh, is doing all these things. Yeah, thank you. That's great. Any other thoughts? Well, let's just go through a few of these verses. Uh, just so you know, the first 13 verses are really the, the, the prologue to Mark's gospel. And Jesus immediately gets into his, his ministry at uh, really verse 14 and 18. So but the, the first prologue account of those first 13 verses. Uh, I've already pointed out that in verse 7, you have John preaching and saying, after me is coming one who is mightier than I. And then this is another example of him stooping down, untying the thong of his sandals. He's not even worthy of that. So, instantly elevates this person that hasn't been really described or mentioned yet. And causes us to see John's humility even more. I baptize you with water. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In verses 8 through 10, you see the Holy Spirit mentioned three times. And that's actually not mentioned much else in Mark's gospel. So you see the sort of density of the Spirit's work at the beginning of the gospel. So at the beginning of the gospel, you have the Spirit working in the repentance of these people, uh, working in John's life. And in verses 8 through 10, he says, I baptize you with water. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan, immediately coming up out of the water. He saw the heavens opening and the Spirit like a dove like a dove descending upon him. And a voice came out of the heavens, You are my beloved Son, and you I am well pleased. And one more verse. Immediately, the Spirit impelled him to go out into the water, uh, in, into the wilderness. So the Trinity is here, right? You have the Holy Spirit, you have Jesus, you have God, the Father, speaking from heaven. So this is another powerful image you have. And I've already mentioned how that, that word, the heavens opening up, that is, uh, the original Greek is schizo, like schism. And it's elsewhere translated, the ASV translates this phrase, the heavens being rent asunder. The NIV says it's being torn open. It's also used to describe like the um, when they were fishing with their nets and they had so many fish that the net couldn't hold them and the net schizo, it was torn apart. When people are divided about Jesus and there's disputes and they're, they're divided, that's the same word, there's a schism between the people. So again, Mark painting this picture not just of sort of a cloud, sort of mist parting, but the heaven is just being torn apart 
Jesus looking up and then coming out is the Holy Spirit like a dove. Another image for us about the power, God's power. And two, now what you have is heaven communicating with earth through Jesus in the Spirit. So this is a miraculous, historical, it's the whole reason the world exists was to bring on this ministry of Jesus. Go ahead. Yes, yes, yeah, it's the same exact word. So when after Jesus dies, the veil was torn. It's the same word, schism. So that's interesting, isn't it? And in fact, that's the only other time, thank you, Joe, in Mark, let me see here, where that word is actually... Well, maybe so. But I, I know that the, the, the tent is torn in Matthew, too, that word is used. But in Mark... Mark fifteen thirty eight, and the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Yeah, same word. Right? Great imagery. So the heavens torn apart, disruption of, you know, God coming to earth through Jesus and the Holy Spirit. And then at the end, after the sacrifice is complete, the old system is, is torn, torn in two. It's, it's over. It's, so this uh, verse 10 through, thir- well, through 12 really ushers in this, this whole new era. There's a whole new way now of communicating between heaven and earth. A whole new way. It's, it's through Christ and the Holy Spirit. And then the Spirit descends like a dove. The imagery of the dove. I know there's debate about that. Uh, doves were sacrificial birds in the Old Testament system. So I think it has that overtone. Doves were a peaceful, you know, animal. We think of the descending like a dove, the dove, peace dove. So I think you have all that wrapped up in the image of the spirit coming down, sacrificial animal descending onto Jesus who is going to be the sacrifice ultimately. And he's a prince of peace at the same time. So another really powerful image that Mark describes for those people who are Romans listening to the story. Spirit, you have this image in your mind and you just want to learn more, right? You want to keep reading and we've only covered eight verses. One more verse. Let's look at a couple things in verse 12. It says, immediately, this is the first use of that word, which you'll see a lot more of in this gospel, immediately. The Spirit impelled him to go out into the wilderness. Again, different than what Luke and Matthew describe. In their gospel, the Spirit leads him. Okay, that's different than the Spirit impelling him to go. It drove him. The Spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness. Verses led. And he was in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild beasts, and the angels were ministering to him. So you want to read next week what happens next, right? Go ahead, Joe. Um, Just one other thing. Right. Yeah, so the other, I, I hadn't actually thought I'd get this far today, but let me just talk about that because um, you get the sense when you're reading this, right, that Mark is ready to go with his story, right? So he doesn't spend any time really talking or, or elaborating on this baptism of Jesus because it doesn't really make sense because Jesus didn't sin. He didn't have to repent of anything. So he wouldn't need to be baptized for repentance of sins. In Luke, 
John actually questions him and says, no, I can't baptize you. You should baptize me. And Jesus says, no, you're going to do this to fulfill all righteousness. And that's also hard to understand. But I think what he's saying is this was inauguration of his ministry, right? This was the beginning of Jesus's public ministry. And fulfill all righteousness was like him saying, no, let's be proper here. Let's, let's have a visual of me being baptized by you, the one who inaugurated my ministry by bringing repentance first to the people. Part of that inauguration is you'll baptize me. We'll see the Holy Spirit come on, and that'll start my ministry. So Luke explains that. Yeah, the obedience. Um, mm-hmm. I think, uh, is it in John where um, Christ asked the, the Pharisees, or they come to question him, and he says, I'll tell you where I come from, um, or why I do these things. Um, mm-hmm. And Christ says, well, if you answer this question, is John from heaven or from man? Yeah, that is in the Gospel of John, right. Yeah. Then why aren't you following him? Yeah. Right. Um, so they say, well, I can't answer that question. And then Christ answers back and says, you know, nor can I tell you how mm. I, why or how I do these things. Right. And it ends up being the righteousness of God following that obedience. Yeah. I think that's a great supplement to what we're, we're reading here. Yeah, that's an argument they use. But it can't make sense in light of the rest of Scripture. Jesus was, was completely sinless. He had to be sinless to be our sacrifice. Yeah, just I'm sorry, I was a little I'm reading John chapter one and there's a section there. Well, it just the, the parallel verse sort of with John is the next day he saw Jesus coming to him, and this is actually after they talk about who is John, are you, are, you, are you Elijah? Are you Christ? Are you a prophet? He says, no, I baptize you in water, but among you stands one whom you do not know. It's he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany beyond Jordan. The next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is he on behalf of whom I said, After me comes a man who has higher rank than I, for he existed before me. That makes you want to go back to John verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. So Jesus eternally existed way before him. I did not recognize him, but so that he might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing in water. John testified, saying, I've seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained upon him. So, um, immediately after Jesus is baptized, his, his ministry is inaugurated, and uh, we'll pick up on this next week, the, the motif or the idea of the wilderness. That's mentioned several times, even these first few verses. John was in the wilderness. Jesus immediately heads out to the wilderness and is tempted there by Satan and the wild beasts. I think we'll end there. And we'll probably pick up on verse 14 next week. Any? Oh, and you have to read. That's your assignment. You have to read through Mark at least once this week. And I would recommend, please, big chunks and try to remember 
all these things. Oh, no, you can't go yet. Because I do want to read a quote from this fellow. He's really been inspiring to read his introduction to Mark's gospel. The rest of this book, it's all Greek. I mean, not all Greek, but I mean, he, he quotes the Bible in Greek. So it's really laborious for me to go through. But he writes so well. I, I'm going to try to. But I do want to just read one paragraph he wrote. No, no, this is English. <laughs> no, it's just one paragraph. Uh, talking about the paradoxes. Because you're going to encounter these as you read through it. And I want you to really help us understand how they can be used to help us understand the word more. Uh, let's see. He's quoting a fellow, Frank Kermode, who summarizes this point that this is a story of paradox. He says, The paradoxes continue. Unmistakable public recognitions alternate with demands for and withdrawals into silence. So there's one paradox. Miracle, everyone sees it. Be quiet about it. Demons infallibly, infallibly recognize him. Disciples do not. The law is now kept and now broken. The canons of purity are challenged. A purity which is itself accused of uncleanness opposes and purges the unclean. So they're saying, you're unclean. Satan is in you. No. The house is not divided. So this accused of being unclean, but that uncleanness purges the unclean. If the general sense that there is a moment of special force in the 8th chapter is well-founded, and the 8th chapter is, when you read it, you'll see it just building and building and building. That's where Peter confesses, you are Christ, the Son of God. You're not Elijah, you're Christ. And then one verse later, he's two verses later, he's being told, get behind me, Satan, because you don't know, because Peter's saying, you're not going to die. So, another real poignant paradox. So that's chapter 8. So, let's see, where was I? Yeah, if the general sense that there is a moment of special force in the 8th chapter is well-founded, it must be so because so many of these paradoxes come together there in a great knot. And that is what, when you read it, it's like, yeah, there's just so many paradoxes, and then this knot with Peter. And so, it's intense, I think. But there are many knots. They occur in the riddling parables, in the frequent collocation of perceptive demons and imperceptive saints, and the delight and gratitude of the outsider who is cured, and the astonishment, fear, and dismay of the insider. You know, furthermore, you could say the insiders of the Jewish people who are completely clueless, and they're going to kill the Savior. It is because of these paradoxes are maintained and never fully resolved in explicit explanations that many people find Mark's book such a great read, tantalizing, thought-provoking, and never dull. So he's making the point that, I made it several times, that he uses this technique to impel us to keep reading and learn more. All right, that's it. Any other questions before we part? Out of Revelation. Not inspired. Say it again. It's not anointed. Just a thought. The difference in the personalities between Mark and uh-huh. It's such a contrast. At the time that they separated, it could have been that Mark was kind of like a social fly, always gathering lots of information, visiting, and Paul is so bottom line and focused that mm-hmm. they just weren't collaborating very well. Yeah. Just a thought. I think it's a good thought. Yeah. They, they, their, their insights and their agendas and how they were wired was just different, and they may not have gelled. Yeah. Yeah. In the end, though, right. Paul really cries out for Mark. Bring him. He's been useful. Yeah. Anything else? All right. Great. We'll see you next week.